It feels like midnight. I know. I felt like it was 1030. And then I looked at the clock and that's actually three hours from now. Yeah, yeah, it's 720. We've entered the dark days of (laughs) Seattle, where it literally starts getting dark around 430. Oh, before that. Yeah. So we've switched to red wine this evening because it feels a little more uh, wintry. Yeah, it's about that time. The day is darker. Moods are darker. (laughs) It's time for the melancholy red to come on out. That's right. Speaking of dark, we recently finished watching a docuseries together called The Vow on HBO, all about the Nexium cult. Yeah, Michelle and I have always been slightly fascinated by cults, which are sort of in the true crime family, mm-hmm. which, as you all know, if you're a faithful listener, so we are also <laughs> obsessed with. That's right. But we were interested in it because, number one, it's about a cult. So, yeah, of course we're in. Mm-hmm. And they also had a chapter in Seattle here. For years. And so we were interested to hear what the story was there. And then also just... I think it's been pretty widely advertised or not ruining anything for anyone that they branded some of their women mm-hmm. with a brand that they did by like holding them down with no anesthesia. So that and making them ask for it. Right. Well, that was part of the process. Right. They had to say like, I would be honored master to yeah. receive this brand or something like that. Fuck off. So anyway, we thought it was high time we talked about cults. Yeah. And Keith Ranieri, who was the leader of that awful organization, was just sentenced to what, 120 years in prison. Is that right? Basically life in prison. And I will say if you do watch the show, and then you do a little reading on it. I mean, they only had so much time. And there was a particular perspective. Sure. uh, In the show, but there was a lot of other terrible shit that wasn't even in the show you can read about. Mm -hmm. It was definitely bad enough to convict him. Absolutely. Yeah, he's a piece of shit. And he got what he deserved. And unfortunately, it came late enough that a lot of people got hurt in the meantime. Yeah. So we want to talk about cults, but we don't necessarily want to like deep dive into any particular cult. There are so many resources out there, podcasts, documentaries, books. Strangely, we're not the only ones that are obsessed with this. Weirdly We'll talk about some of them. Yeah, I'm sure we'll mention them. I'm just saying I don't want to do a deep dive there because it's been done far better than we can do it in, you know, the few minutes we're going to have for each one. It's there for you. And this is not the episode. That's right. We want to get into some of the psychology behind, you know, what is a cult, how it starts, who joins it and why, that kind of stuff. How do you get sucked in? Yeah. And how do they keep you there? Right. Because the really fascinating part to me is you hear about a cult and the first thing I think anyway is how could those people be so stupid? How could you not see what's happening? How could you let yourself be pulled into something like that? I think that's one thing the vow does a really good job of. Mm -hmm. Because they had so much footage since one of the people that made that docuseries was a filmmaker that was actually hired by the Nexium cult to sort of document as a member and then hired. Right. Yeah. But that's part of the reason they, you know, wooed him and pulled him in Mm -hmm. because they wanted to be presented in a particular light. Sure. They had all this footage from early on Mm -hmm. to right up to the very end um, when it all fell apart. And it really gives you a good sense of what happens to people when they get drawn in and how psychologically they're 
I guess, brainwashed, for lack of a better word. Mm -hmm. And they get them to stay and subject themselves to things like branding and starvation and sleep deprivation and Mm -hmm. all this stuff that they basically do because they're told. And that's the only reason why. Adults, full-grown adults who you would think could make their own decisions, but they get to a psychological state where they really cannot. And also, it's a little lesson in, you know, beware the leader that wants to completely control the narrative. Right. So let's talk about that, the characteristics of a typical cult leader. Probably the best resource we looked at is this article called How Cults Work by Julia Layton for How Stuff Works. And it was originally published in 2011, but it was updated in 2020. I love this one line in the article that says, there is no cult without a powerful, charismatic leader. Yep. Basically, every cult leader has a certain kind of charisma combined with a healthy dose of narcissism. Mm-hmm. And probably sociopathy. They have an authoritarian way about them and they demand to be revered as almost godlike. Right, they kind of become obsessed with those Mm -hmm. accolades and that undying, unconditional love and support from all of their members, and they sort of get addicted to it. Sure. Yeah, what do I always say? It's intoxicating to feel desired. That's true. It's true. This is a whole new level, though. uh, Yeah. So real quick history. um, The term cult actually comes from the Latin word cultus, meaning to till or cultivate. And historically, it was used to describe the sacrifices, offerings, and monuments built to cultivate favor with the gods. Right. There are certain characteristics that are common when you're looking at a cult. So in addition to the charismatic leader, uh, there's usually some sort of indoctrination program associated with the cult. So some kind of thought reform, which leads to like a brainwashing or Mm -hmm. mind control. And then also usually some type of exploitation. It could be sexual, could be financial. In the vow, the women that were being branded They were forced to give what they called collateral, Mm -hmm. which was either naked photos of themselves or... Completely talking shit about their family. Yeah, and they would have these women make up false statements about things that never actually happened Mm -hmm. and record it. And they would say, yeah, we know this never actually happened, but we want you to do this and give it to us so we have this collateral so we know that you can be trusted. Because if you deviate from what you've committed to do, then... And we can always release this and ruin you, basically. Yeah. yeah. And there were famous people associated with Nexium. Part of the reason was because, one, famous people usually come with money. And what does a cult do except want your fucking money? Right. <laughs> and two, famous people, I think, inaccurately lend credibility to the cult. Mm. Like, mm-hmm. oh, if Allison Mack from Smallville, who was hugely entrenched in Nexium, Currently on house arrest for her part in all of right. that. That's right. If she's a part of it, then... It must be okay, right? Because I see these like beautiful, intelligent, wholesome people that are all participating in this. So it must be normal. It must be fine because they wouldn't get into something like that. Well, in that cult in particular, Nexium, which by the way is spelled N-X-I-V-M, they really build it as an executive success program that was intended to, or at least on paper, intended to help you succeed in your life and your career and your goals and become more confident and successful. And a big part of it, too, was the happiness. You know, they mm-hmm. really promoted living a life of joy and happiness, which kind of reminds me of the love bombing 
I have seen the phrase love bombing used in the context of dating. Yeah, I think we've joked about it before. I think I posted something on Instagram and Twitter about it from our account. <laughs> we consider it to be like, you know, someone who's a little overly intense in their show of affection. Immediately. To, yeah. Right, to a point where it feels inauthentic. Right, because it is. Because how can someone actually know you that quickly, right? So if they're giving you a bunch of gifts and being so complimentary and saying they love all these things about you when they barely know you, that's considered love bombing. And that is very often what happens to you if you are dating a narcissist. I had no idea that that phrase originated from a cult leader. Me neither. It was coined by members of the Unification Church of the United States in the 70s. You may have heard of the Moonies. The Reverend Sun Myung Moon founded the church. You probably have seen like the mass weddings, the imagery of mass weddings. Right, where like hundreds of people are getting married at one time. Those are the Moonies, right? So he said in 1978, Unification church members are smiling all of the time, even at four in the morning. The man who is full of love must live that way. When you go out witnessing, you can caress the wall and say that it can expect you to witness well and be smiling when you return. What face could better represent love than a smiling face? This is why we talk about love bomb. Moonies have that kind of happy problem. What the fuck? (laughs) So here's some of the psychology behind that. Let's talk about Margaret Singer for a minute. She's an American clinical psychologist. She's a prominent figure in the study of undue influence in social and religious context. So certainly qualified to make statements on the cult type indoctrination. This love bombing usually happens at the beginning, and it's particularly effective with people who are kind of searching for something, which Mm -hmm. is a characteristic of people who often get drawn into cults. They're sort of at a vulnerable turning point in their life. And so they use this love bombing to show them so much interest, so much friendship, so much community and make them just feel like, oh my gosh, I finally found my place. I found my people. Uh, She says, love bombing is a coordinated effort, usually under the direction of leadership that involves long-term members flooding recruits and newer members with flattery, verbal seduction, affectionate, but usually non-sexual touching, and lots of attention to their every remark. Love bombing or the offer of instant companionship is a deceptive ploy accounting for many successful recruitment drives. So if you're somebody who is feeling lonely or like you don't have a community or a place and then suddenly you start hanging around with these people who are just so kind and instant friends and you just feel good, right? Yep. You're going to feel like I found my place. I found my people, but it's actually a tactic, which is fucked up. They're playing you. Like Michelle said, it's really common in abusive relationships or relationships where one party is a narcissist because they use that tactic to kind of draw you in and Mm -hmm. fuck with you psychologically. To make you adore them. So I feel like it's worth noting that Uh, The word cult itself is kind of controversial, and a lot of social scientists don't even really want to use that word on its own anymore because of the associations that we all have now because of the, you know, doomsday cults, the end of the world and mass murders and stuff, those cults that have made the news that we've all heard about. Right, so much media attention. 
we have a not entirely full or clear picture of what the word cult actually means. We have these associations that are kind of more grandiose than the definition of the word. So the word cult itself means, according to the American Heritage Dictionary, a religion or religious sect generally considered to be extremist or false, with its followers often living in an unconventional manner under the guidance of an authoritarian charismatic leader and or a system or community of religious worship and ritual. There's a Netflix show called Explained that has an episode about cults. And in listening to that, we heard from author Reza Aslan, who wrote the book Zealot, The Life and Times of Jesus of Nazareth. And he said that that strict definition is problematic because it's more of a value judgment than it is a functional word. Every prophet of every major religion can be considered a charismatic leader. The biggest joke in religious studies is cult plus time equals religion. So that's really interesting. I mean, how would you define the difference between a cult and a religion? Like, what about a bunch of monks that choose to live together or a bunch of nuns who choose to take a vow and live in a convent? I mean, how come that's not a cult? It's a religious organization, the group of people all living together like cult members often do and believing in the same powerful godlike figure. Mm -hmm. Um, What's the difference? Well, the article you were talking about before from How Stuff Works says there is no meaningful difference between a cult and a religion in terms of faith, morality, or spirituality. So note the word meaningful there, because how is a religion going to start? It has to start small, probably as a little bit of a cult to begin with, right? Cult-like tendencies, probably. That is why today social scientists like to use the term destructive cults rather than just cult, because there are a lot of new religious movements that aren't necessarily trying to completely exploit and fuck over their members. Mm -hmm. And then there are the ones that are, right? Mm -hmm. So a non-destructive cult or religion attempts to alleviate its members' vulnerability through spiritual guidance in an effort to help them exercise control over their own lives, which is the opposite of what a destructive cult would do. What does a destructive cult do? It exploits its members' vulnerability in order to gain complete control over them, often using unethical psychological techniques to bring about thought reform. So a destructive cult is more like, come into our world, let us control you, your actions, your thoughts, everything. Give us all your money, give us your body. Cut off contact with your family, Mm -hmm. your friends, your outside world. Whereas an NRM, a new religious movement, is more about helping you find that community and that faith for you to help you function in your daily life. Right. You don't have to like move in and cut off everybody in your existing community. So what's your take on all that? Um, I don't really see, like, I understand and appreciate the term destructive cult. Mm -hmm. In my mind, I'm an atheist. I've already said that on prior episodes. And I'm not interested in being a part of organized religion. Part of it is because I think there is a component of control to every religion. Mm -hmm. And I just don't really subscribe to the thought that, you know, one religion out of the thousands out there has the right answer, the right deity, the right special (laughs) book, the right whatever. And so this is a community of people that have a common thought and we will train you and explain to you why you should believe the things that we believe. So honestly, I don't see a major difference between like a traditional organized religion and a cult. 
I do see a difference between a destructive cult yeah. and like somebody who just likes to go to church on Sunday and has faith in God. And I will say that, you know, I grew up going to church. That was important to my mom. And I have seen how a church or organized religion can create a community for people or can help an individual who is, you know, at a lost point in their life and needs that kind of love and support. And so I acknowledge that that can be a benefit. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm just not interested in immersing myself in an organized religion because I am an atheist, which means, you know, I don't believe in a particular deity or a particular God or any God for that matter. Doesn't mean I'm not a believer in other energy transfers and other things. But to me, organized religion whether it's a new religious movement or a cult or an established religion. I mean, to me, it's all still a group of people instructing your thoughts mm-hmm. and your faith. And in a lot of cases, your financial responsibility. Yep, and that's where tithing comes in. <laughs> so to me, I don't see a big difference yeah. between cults and religion. But I do see a difference between a destructive cult and a religious organization. What about you? I agree with you. I think that my tolerance for that stuff is maybe a little higher than yours is, but not I by think much. so, yeah. Not by much. Side note, one of my favorite things ever, and I made you watch it, is Ricky Gervais talking to Stephen Colbert about religion. I love that clip. It's Can the you best. please post it in Absolutely. the socials, yes. the episode notes, whatever. Yes. I just think it would be a great thing for people to see to sort of, it, it's another way of explaining basically what I just tried to articulate about no, my feelings about religion. Atheism. It's incredible. And um, I'm going to butcher it. So just go watch the thing that I'm going to post. <laughs> but Stephen Colbert is questioning Ricky Gervais, like, how can you be an atheist? I don't understand. Because Stephen Colbert is religious. He's Catholic, yeah. Trying to have a respectful conversation about it, which I think they accomplished. Yeah, it was a great respectful conversation, actually. So Ricky Gervais says, how many gods are out there? What, 3,000 probably around the world that different people believe in? About 3,000? So you don't believe in 2,999 of them. I just don't believe in one more. Precisely. Fucking mic drop. Succinct clear way to get Mm -hmm. his point across you know colbert had a rebuttal and he didn't change his mind of course not but he also very much respected that explanation right it's the same thing we've talked about before about people equate atheism to like satanic worship right that's not what it's about (laughs) very different people that are atheists can be spiritual or science-based beliefs things like that yeah it doesn't mean that they worship the devil mostly because they don't believe in that either right (laughs) there is no devil if you don't believe in a god it's just (laughs) that stigma that is out there that even if you don't agree with Mm -hmm. ricky gervais i think understanding his point and understanding what atheism is about is still worth educating yourself on. Absolutely. So definitely post it. I will. We got off track. Let's get back to it. You mentioned something before about people being in a vulnerable place. If they're going through something, going through a transition, they're going to be more open to trying something new and trying to find a place where they feel stable and safe and welcome and accepted, right? Bombed with love, yes. Yes, bombed with love, if you will. So that Netflix episode of Explained listed the seven elements of indoctrination. And that was the first one. The person is at a crossroads, typically. The second thing is the soft sell. So the members or the leader will go at that vulnerable person with the love bombing. 
right? Right. And I've seen things where sometimes they downplay the commitment required to be. It might just be like, oh, you know, we just have a group that meets once a week for an Mm -hmm. hour to talk about this thing or that thing. And and maybe it's just a book club. Right. Exactly. It's just a Bible study. And then you meet these people because you come for one time like, oh, I'll give it a shot. And you get the love bombing. Mm -hmm. And then you're like, wow, this is really cool. I want to spend more time with these people. So that's how they get you. The soft sell. Well, and that one resonated with me because I dated a man who had previously married into a Mormon family and converted for a while and ended up fairly involved because his kids were a part of the church and he was there like teaching Sunday school. And he described it to me as, this is so fucked up, the milk and the meat. I'm sorry, what? Exactly. I grew up Catholic and we're used to the blood and the body. Right, yeah. (laughs) This is different. (laughs) You don't get to eat the milk and the meat at church. (laughs) It's kind of a fucked up analogy when you think about it. Absolutely it is. At every service, we're having the body and blood of Christ. Yeah, no, you're all fucking cannibals, you weirdos. (laughs) I'm just kidding, sort of. Everyone calm down. Everyone just (laughs) calm the fuck down. No, so in the, like, Sunday school at the Mormon temple, what they're giving to the kids of what they believe is the sweet, easy-to-digest, soft-sell part of it. And it's not until those kids are older and, quote, make a decision on their own to continue in the church. After years of brainwashing. Exactly. That they then get the full sermons and all that where they get the meat. They get the weighty, heavy, harder to digest parts of the religion. Disgusting analogy. I know. The whole thing's fucking disgusting. I've never heard it before. I was like, what the fuck did you just say to me when he was telling me about this? You might want to change your shtick. It wasn't his shtick. This is what the church was telling him to tell them. I pretend to be a vegetarian. I'm going to stop after the milk. Thank you. You know what it also reminds me of? The whole soft sell? Like a pyramid scheme. Oh, God, When you go to like... All those MLMs. Like a Tupperware party Uh or whatever. They still have those. I don't know. Oh, yeah. And you think like, oh, I'm just going to a party with like wine and girlfriends and snacks. And yeah, yeah, I'll buy a couple things. And then before you know it, you're like being approached about having your own party. And then you're being approached about being a consultant. And then, you know... All of those fucking multi-level marketing things are on some level cults. They're not religious cults, but they're fucking cults. And just to be transparent, I have hosted many of those parties sure. at my house and bought many things and yeah, had a great time. Kickbacks, man. But again, I stop at the milk. I'm not being a consultant. <laughs> Until you can get out of the MLM, then I will buy your purses and your makeup and your candles and all that. But I won't sell that shit for you. No, I'll host your party because then I get free shit. Right. It's friends and wine. So, you know, come at me, Stella and Dot. Right. And I actually really love their stuff. Me too, but I'm not selling it. No, I will not be a rep. Absolutely not. Or a stylist or whatever they call it. (laughs) Okay. So let's get back on track here. That was numbers one and two on the seven elements of indoctrination. Number three, creation of a new reality. Over time, you become more and more enveloped in that world, right? And typically that's done through isolation where they keep you from your friends and family. They keep you from the outside world so that you're out of that feedback loop so that their manipulation is much more likely to sink in because there's nobody out there for checks and balances. So I dated this guy for a while whose family was Jehovah's Witness Mm. and he was raised in that religion and he was kind of the bad seed because he had sort of left the religion. When he would see his family, he was very, like, reluctantly welcomed, even to, like, go see his parents because he wasn't participating. That's fucking sad. I always remember that it was a big deal that he was dating me because, like, they call people outside the religion worldly, I think. so. That sounds like a good thing. They would be, I know. (laughs) 
queer. It would be like, oh, he's got a worldly girlfriend now. Fuck yeah, I'm worldly. I know, but it was it had a negative connotation when no. they used it. So it was sort of like he was sinning by inviting influences mm-hmm. such as myself from the outside exactly. world. Which I will admit I can be a bad influence, okay? But that is absolutely <laughs> fucking true. Not just because I don't practice your religion. So anyway, that was <laughs> that was interesting. But remember the Jehovah's Witnesses used to come to my house all the time. You were too nice. They wouldn't go away because you just kept telling them you'd talk to them later. Drinking the milk. That milk had gone bad. (laughs) It was spoiled. (laughs) Spoiled fucking milk. And then I finally just stopped answering the door because they would show up with like more and more people. It was like they were ready to love bomb me. And I was like, I no longer accept it. So even though they clearly knew I was home, they could see me in the house like vacuuming and doing whatever. I just wouldn't answer the door. And they would ring the doorbell like four times. Finally, they stopped coming. I asked you so many times to let me open the door and talk to them. (laughs) You wouldn't let me. I could have handled that for you in one visit. So many people are going to be pissed when they hear this. It's just what we think. Sorry, not sorry. Not sorry. Okay, so number four. The most important relationship becomes with the leader. Quite often, through that isolation... There's a lot of cults that really won't even let you talk to other new members because they don't want people who are just freshly in from the outside to, you know, start questioning and and getting ideas together. So you're talking to higher ups and revering this leader, right? Mm -hmm. They don't want you to have any relationship in your life that you place a higher value on than Mm -hmm. that. What are you doing right now? I'm looking at the definition of worldly for Jehovah's Witnesses. Sorry, this is what it says. Worldly people is a pejorative term in the mind of a Jehovah's Witness. A worldly person is anyone who is not a Jehovah's Witness, which will be destroyed by their God, Jehovah, at Armageddon, unless they become a Jehovah's Witness before then. Do you know what I find fascinating about Jehovah's Witness? Is that their belief is that heaven... There's only room for 144,000 people to get into heaven. So, like, that ship sailed a long time ago. That shit's full. (laughs) What are you doing? You're going on a waiting list. (laughs) So, apparently, it's then heaven on earth. So, that's still okay. If you could go to the presidential suite, but instead you're getting a standard room with two twin beds, (laughs) I'm not signing up for that. One other thing I learned from that ex-Mormon guy that I dated was that the reason people who are Mormon want such big families is because the bigger the family, the bigger the planet you get in heaven. What? I don't know. That's what he said, and I found that fucking fascinating. Interesting. Who do we know that's Mormon that could verify or Mm. deny this? Oh, I know who could do it. Hey, so ladies from Family Home Evening with Bad Mormons. Oh, yeah. Ask uh, them. We are little buddies on Instagram, and they have a hilarious podcast. Um, the little tagline on Instagram says, two ex-Mormon sisters and siblings share stories and reveal questionable life choices that we probably shouldn't repeat in public. Those are our kind of ladies. Yeah, yeah. and they'll know the answer to that. So, ladies, tell us, am I wrong? Am I right? Can I just say something? Having a large family so that you can get a big planet sounds about (laughs) as reasonable to me as writing the Hale-Bopp Comet to heaven. I mean, this is the kind of shit that makes me feel like, yeah, there's not a big difference. This is a large congregation for this organized religion. Right. And I just wonder if what do they call them? Fundamentalists that are a lot more extreme in some of these beliefs. Like Warren Jeffs and his, you know, 8 million wives and all right. that. Like, that's different. I don't even 
even think they claim him anymore, by oh, the way. No. <laughs> but, oh, no, no, no. But what I'm saying is that, like, you have to scratch below the surface, right, of any religion. Even like, okay, so I grew up Catholic. Right. We always talk about in terms of being like sex positive and things like that. Mm-hmm. I know that at least I have said on prior episodes that sexual repression has some very negative consequences. Yeah. And part of what I'm referring to is this terrible institutionalized abuse Shame. within the organization because they're human, they're sexual beings, they're forbidden from having mm-hmm. a normal, healthy sexual relationship. So they turn into predators, right? And they right. find these young, innocent, vulnerable kids that they can prey upon, that they have easy access to. And that's what happens. I mean, in the Nexium cult, you go into it because you're trying to be a successful professional who has a lot of joy in their life. And then before it, you know it, you're fucking getting held down on a massage table, getting branded with someone's initials so you can be a sex slave. It's like after you ate 40 calories that day, because that's all they'd allow you to eat. And you played volleyball the entire night before. <laughs> and also, yeah, you got two hours of sleep. So maybe you're sleep deprived, starving, fucked up mind. You kind of think that that's normal and that's what you do. And that's not normal. It's not fucking normal. That's one of the things that I read about was that they assault all your senses. They being cult leaders, the people who are trying to indoctrinate you, assault all the senses because it's a lot harder to think clearly mm-hmm. when you've got all your senses firing. Well, and then the other thing, going back to the isolation you were talking about in the creation of a new reality, once you are isolated and siloed off from the rest of the world, including your family and friends long enough, enough, Mm -hmm. you don't really have anyone to turn to. You don't really have anywhere to go. And you're questioning your own sense of reality. Because you have no confidence anymore because you've been taught and told how to think, Mm -hmm. what to eat, when to sleep, what to do. You don't have the energy or the confidence to fight it anymore. And you just sort of become this robot. You give yourself over. I remember this other guy that I dated for fuck's sake. We're going to run out of these stories eventually. (laughs) I know. (laughs) He was in the military for a long time. And he was telling me that sometimes it's really hard for guys when they get out of the military, if they enlisted like right out of high school, Mm -hmm. because they were very young men. And they spend a long time with this really regimented routine where people are telling them everything that they're supposed to be doing every minute of the day, Mm -hmm. when they're supposed to sleep, when they're supposed to eat, what they're supposed to eat, like their whole life is planned out. Like you get up and you do what you're told to do. And then if you get out of the military, suddenly you're like 26 or something, and you've spent the last eight years having your whole life completely thought out and planned out for you. It's very much a struggle to figure out how to do life on your own. Obviously, that's not everyone. But there are a lot of people according to what he told me. I believe that that's also an incredible argument against being a helicopter parent. Just F. FYI, everybody. God, we are all over tonight. We are (laughs) everywhere. Apologies for all the jumping. That was a great Prosecco theory, though. I liked it. Don't be a helicopter parent because your kid's going to end up in a fucking cult. Because they don't know how to do life. (laughs) They don't know how to think for themselves and do life. Shit. Fucking great. Okay. Back on track. Okay. The seven elements of indoctrination. (laughs) Okay. Number five, external enemy. The leader solidifies the relationship by convincing you that everyone and everything else is bad. So then you would psychologically run to the cult leader. You enter a perpetual state of denial of your own reasoning power. 
And people in this state of cognitive dissonance will always choose the leader because they can't think for themselves anymore. Well, right. They've been programmed right. to choose the leader. Like I said a minute ago, they don't have anyone else to choose. This is the commitment they've made and they're programmed. Yeah. And I believe that that's what intensive, organized religious upbringings are about too. You're being programmed. Absolutely. You Maybe you're not being isolated from your family and friends and you can still like do your job and live your life, but it's still a programming in you that like 100%. this God is the one and only real God out of the three thousand gods right because that's what we believe in this family right and we say so i think you're right but i also think that is the big difference why the word destructive cult is really important right i mean right. if you're just trying to have 12 kids so you can get your own planet it's fine <laughs> <laughs> sorry i could not resist it was such a softball <laughs> Then it's fine. Yeah. <laughs> I love it. Okay. Number six. We're going to fucking finish this list of seven things. We're getting real there. close. We're getting there. This is a very authentic type of Megan and Michelle conversation. Oh, yeah. Even when we're not recording. Yeah. You guys are along for the ooh, ride ooh, tonight. Ooh, all over the place. <laughs> all over the place. We can stick with it just fine. We hope you can too. Buckle up. <laughs> 50 minutes in, buckle up. <laughs> If you're still with us, yeah. <laughs> your seatbelt probably came off a while ago. <laughs> okay. Number six, uh, peer pressure scales up control. Because we have a fundamental human desire to be part of a group, that desire can override even our own perception of reality. And it's that pressure to conform that the leader uses to control members. It's just like mean girls. The cult of Regina George. Yeah. (laughs) And remember that scene where they're trying to make her look bad and they're like cutting holes in her clothes and she puts them on after gym class and then all the girls in school start wearing shirts with the holes cut out Mm -hmm. because that's what Regina George did. She's the cult leader. That's right. So all of this leads to number seven, that they are then serving the whims of a likely sociopathic narcissist. Right. Who is their leader. Which is amazing that one person through narcissism Mm -hmm. and thought control technique can do that to so many people. Yeah. You know, even to the point of, in some cults, mass suicide, right? Yeah. So... I think that we have to talk about that one in particular, and I don't want to dive too deep. There's been multiple documentaries. Everyone knows what it is. Right. So we've all heard of Jonestown. We've all heard the phrase, oh, he drank the Kool-Aid, right? He bought into this thing. That's where this comes from. That might disturb people to realize that. Like, if we have a younger listener that's not as familiar, tell them we're drinking the Kool-Aid. They should learn. So this guy, James Warren Jones, Reverend James Warren Jones. Jim Jones. His cult, the People's Temple, was sort of the beginning of the more modern definition, what we think of when we hear the word cult. Right. The doomsday stuff, the violence and the death, right? Not that this is the first time it ever happened, but this was fucking egregious. But it started with a beautiful idea. It did. Just like Nexium. Exactly. Live your life full of joy and find success professionally and personally. And then it turned into a fucked up sex trafficking situation. Yes. Now, the People's Temple, Jim Jones began the People's Temple in the 50s in Indianapolis. And he attracted a really diverse following because he was dedicated to integration and racial equity. 
equity. And his teachings were really influenced by liberation theology and socialist beliefs. So there were a lot of people that were seeing the way that the United States was operating and wanted better. This was kind of before the huge civil rights push, or at least before the culmination of it in the 60s. And I said it was a beautiful idea because he had quite a diverse following. A lot of people of different races and ethnic backgrounds. Yeah. They all had this common goal. Yeah, it seemed incredibly idealistic. And he moved from Indianapolis to California in 1965, and membership went from less than 100 to thousands. He had thriving churches in both San Francisco and L.A., and because of that, he had built up this significant amount of political clout. During that time, he was building a commune in the country of Guiana, down in South America, that he called Jonestown. There's a narcissistic tendency peeking out for you right there. He named the town after himself? Yes. Apparently, in 1977, a magazine, a New West magazine, was going to publish an expose on life in the People's Temple. They're quoted as saying, a mixture of Spartan regimentation, fear, and self-imposed humiliation. And because of that, he and his congregation fled to that commune. So because a tell-all was going to come out about what was really going on behind the scenes, he and thousands of people moved to another country to start their new society, basically. Yes. So they lived down there for a while. He even held... This is so fucked up. He held mock mass suicides to condition members to die for the cause. I'm pretty sure that during the first mock suicide, I would probably tap out. You'd be like, wait a minute, this is meat. I'm all about (laughs) diversity and inclusion, but I'm not sure that I am prepared to die for the cause. I only came to Guyana for the milk. What the fuck (laughs) is this meat doing here? This meat is rotten. This is some rotten ass meat. So concerned family members back in the U.S. convinced Congressman Leo Ryan to fly down and visit Jonestown to learn more about it. And while he was there, apparently a number of members of the People's Temple expressed a desire to Uh, leave with him. Yeah, they were probably like, listen, Congressman, I think you're great. I'm happy to vote for you. Shit's getting weird. I just had to participate in a mock mass suicide yesterday. Can I please get on your plane? Yeah, can we come back with you? But guess what? He never made it home. Shocking. Yeah, because some of Jim Jones's little henchmen went to the airstrip and killed him and the other members that were trying to leave before they could fly out. And then the same day, November 18th, 1978, he ordered his congregation to drink a concoction of cyanide-laced grape-flavored Flavor-Aid. Drinking the Kool-Aid. Not even Kool-Aid. He got off-brand. And also worth noting that he had enough cyanide. I don't know how much cyanide it takes to kill like a thousand people. What was a 918 total? Including he, 276 fucking children. He had that shit on hand. And yeah. speaking of the children, I watched a documentary about this. A lot of the children were too young to know or understand. Yeah. So the parents administered that drink to them, squirted it in their own kids' mouths. Oh. Before they took their own lives so that they could make sure that they all went wherever the fuck they were going together. Yeah. There's a recording of him saying, like, if we can't live in peace, then we'll die in peace. The recording is so creepy to listen to, probably because you know what's happening. But I could not imagine taking my young child and squirting cyanide down their throat. Am I remembering correctly that he didn't even drink it? He shot himself? Maybe, yeah. Such a fucking gross, narcissist, chicken shit. 
he got almost a thousand people to drink this Kool-Aid, which is a, not a well, great death. And then no. he shot himself. Not all of them did it. Some of those people were shot too. It was the greatest single loss of American civilian life in a deliberate act prior to September 11th. That's fucking incredible in a terrible way. Yeah. And to this day, it's the largest mass murder-suicide in modern history. Okay, so since we're talking about a specific cult, and we are both fascinated by this shit, let's just let's just throw out a couple more um, crazy-ass stories. Okay, well, I made a reference earlier, a snarky reference to the Hale-Bopp comet, so I'll yes. talk about Heaven's Gate for a minute. Okay. So this is a cult that started in the 70s by... Marshall Applewhite and Bonnie Nettles. Who, by the way, I read, um, dubbed themselves Bo and Peep. Yeah. (laughs) And that was kind of unusual because typically a cult will have one clear leader and this one had two. They believed that the members of their cult were going to leave this earth in a spaceship that was going to come pick them up. That sounds so real. Right. (laughs) I remember this shit happening. Yeah, I I mean, I remember hearing about it, but I didn't remember enough to not watch the documentary. Well, let's be real. We watched it anyway. Yeah, I still need to watch it. So as per typical, you know, the members had to live as a group and they had to give up all of their possessions and family. Another unique thing, though, about this cult is they actually ran a successful web design business to (laughs) fund their lives. In San Diego. And they were encouraged to detach themselves from emotion and give up sex entirely. Fuck that. I would be out immediately upon hearing that condition. Yeah. If I recall correctly from the documentary, Bonnie Nettles ended up passing away and then it circled the drain real quick after that. Marshall Applewhite, I don't think, was really the leader that she was. And so... In 1997, when they heard that the Hale-Bopp comet was approaching close to Earth, there was this rumor that there was a UFO following it. And so Marshall Applewhite told them, it's our ride. You know, it's coming (laughs) for us. (laughs) They were convinced that their salvation was finally coming. So in March of 1997, all 39 members of Heaven's Gate were found dead in the house that they shared from a parent suicide in preparation for their transition to heaven. They were all like wearing the same thing. They all had Nikes on they were all covered in blankets not exactly the promotion that nike's looking no (laughs) not so much but hadn't they all like castrated themselves too i think if i remember correctly the castration didn't come that day oh you know how i said that they were encouraged to detach themselves from emotion and give up sex no so part of that giving up sex is that they would castrate themselves but and then they had to like live like that but there was some spaceship came bad stories of like it not going well i think there was a doctor that was part of the community or whatever the cult and they tried to do some at-home castration that did not go well doesn't seem like it would go well (laughs) so i think that these members some of them suffocated each other do you remember did they drink something i I know there was some suffocation there was some poison involved yeah like suffocation poison you know god i can't even imagine being the person called to the scene and walking in on that i mean i've seen video investigative video and you can see all their like black oh yeah shoes with the white nike swoosh like hanging out yeah so that's heaven's gate yeah we probably should put a trigger warning on this episode like true crime explicit shit 
it. Yeah. Sorry, guys. Also, if you're religious, you might not want to listen. Yeah. Or maybe you should just to get the link to the Ricky Gervais video. There you go. Because you should all watch it. Also, I'd like to just note, and I'm going to steal a page from the My Favorite Murder book because I'm obsessed with that podcast. And every time they do a live show, they, they do this little disclaimer of like, yes, we're talking about really terrible shit. And yes, we're also laughing and making jokes. And it's not at the expense of the people who lost their lives. There's just some ridiculousness kind of around it and as part of the story. It's just like fascinating in a fucked up way, which often elicits inappropriate emotion, you know, like laughter, like this is so weird. I don't know how else to react. Well, and we also have fairly dark senses of humor. That's both of us. So that's true. So don't hate us forever for that. And also go listen to my favorite murder. Not that they need my fucking plug, but it's the best. We're plugging so many podcasts in this episode. Let's talk about another one from my teen years, the Branch Davidians, good old Waco, Texas. I remember the big events. Right? But I don't know much about this cult. So I dove into it a little bit today. It was actually an offshoot of a Seventh-day Adventist sect from like way the fuck back. It's worth noting, since we were talking about religion and cults, that a lot of cults actually start as an extremist offshoot Mm -hmm. of an existing organized religion. Even the members of that religious church or organization won't claim them, like we said with Warren Jeffs, because they're just way too extreme in their ideals. So they kind of go start their own religious organization that becomes a cult. Right. So long before David Koresh had anything to do with the Branch Davidians, they had settled on a tract of land near Waco, Texas, where they built a compound called the Mount Carmel Center um, and began preparing for the second coming, as you do. Right. Yeah. And uh, in 1981, David Koresh joined and ended up forming a special friendship and later an affair with the leader, Lois, who was the widow of the former leader, Benjamin Rodden, I think is the name. And she ended up naming Koresh as her successor. After her death, I believe, Koresh ended up fighting her son in a violent gun battle before taking over in 1987. Still happens in Texas, apparently. Don't mess with Texas. So his doctrine, apparently titled New Light, declared that all women were his spiritual wives. All women? All women. Even underage girls and those women who were already married. Oh, for fuck's sake. Yeah. He declared himself a messiah, albeit an imperfect one, and preached that the apocalypse was imminent. Because of course it was. Um, he amounted a vast arsenal of firearms and ended up facing suspicion of child abuse at his church center, Mount Carmel. Apparently the cult's members overlooked his sexual abuse because it was his call from God. This is a fucking problem. Wow. I mean, how much brainwashing does it take for you to just be like, well, sexual abuse doesn't apply to that individual. Right. No, I know what you did to my child, but God called you to do it. So it's okay. That's disgusting. Jesus Christ. How ironic. I know. (laughs) It's just... Eventually, in uh, February of 1993, based on weapons charges, the ATF raided the compound. And there was a standoff, some of you may remember, lasting 51 days. I do remember. I remember this. The ATF finally came in, battering the walls of the center and sending in tear gas. A fire broke out and it killed more than 80 members, including 20 children and David Koresh himself. Awful. Yeah. Very violent end for a pretty fucked up violent guy. And a lot of really innocent people. Is that cult still active or did it just go down in flames? Oh, God. (laughs) I don't know the answer and you're a horrible person. (laughs) 
part of the reason you like me. That's true. I never pretended to be anything but. No, no, I love you for it. Let's talk about the children of God. Oh, please. So another David. In the 1960s, there was a Christian minister named David Berg who moved to Huntington Beach to recruit members from the large young hippie population. And they were attracted to his anti-establishment attitude. I would have been too. So a lot of them gave up their job, gave up their life, donated all their savings to the group so that they could live as a commune in David Berg's house. Then they ended up moving to Arizona when he claimed to have received a revelation that California would be struck by an earthquake. Doesn't that happen like a hundred times a year? All the time. Yeah. So members begin to call Berg Moses and their group, the Children of God at that point. Here's what's crazy. By 1974, it had more than 4,000 members in 70 different countries. Jesus. Wait, 74? They didn't even have the internet. Like, how did they have that kind of outreach? Yeah, good point. That's insane. So unlike some of the other cults that we were talking about where sex was discouraged or reserved for the leader of the cults, in this cult, Berg had a pretty progressive attitude towards sex and he encouraged open sexual relationships and experimentation. Unfortunately, they've also been accused of encouraging child sex abuse in what was called flirty fishing. Ew. He encouraged his members to engage in sexual relationships to attract new members. So basically, they, you know, attracted people by... By love bombing? Yeah. (laughs) That's a whole different kind of love bomb. Jesus. They now refer to themselves, instead of the Children of God, as the Family International. And it's still a pretty active group, despite Berg's passing in 1994. So, you know, it's there for you, if that's Sounds good, but I would recommend staying away from the uh, child sex abuse. Always a good Mm -hmm. piece of advice, Megan. Thank you for that. And, you know, just remember (laughs) that the people that are part of this establishment are pieces of shit because they encourage that. So Also that. So speaking of pieces of shit, have you ever heard of Charles Manson? Of course I have. Of course you have. So what's really interesting about the Manson family is that unlike most cults, it was not primarily religion-based. Apparently, he did dabble in Satanism, though, and Scientology, which... Not an atheist. Real quick. Scientology, also a fucking cult. Definitely a cult. Everybody should go watch Going Clear. Good job getting out of that, Katie Holmes. Oof, man. Leah Remini is doing a whole series on it. This shit is fascinating, guys. Netflix has all the things. HBO has many more. Drawing a parallel to The Vow, Scientology also has a lot of famous people with money oh, yeah. funding it and supporting it. So just got to keep putting money in to keep bettering yourself. Right. You can just buy your way into Absolutely. the glorious ever after, whatever that may be for you. Or the aliens inhabiting some fucking somebody's body. Scientology is bizarre. If you want a good little lesson on Scientology, South Park did an incredible episode that is (laughs) entirely true. Every single thing they say in it is true. They just animated it to tell you the story. It's fucking brilliant. Please go watch. Nice. Anyway. Back to Charlie Mr. Charles Manson. The impetus for his little cult, which he also called the family, by the way. The children of God had the family and Manson had the family. It's not surprising to me that a lot of these cults use terms like family Mm -hmm. because they're trying to create that perception of this is where you belong. These are your people. This, Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. So his thing was he was predicting a violent race war in which African-Americans would prevail, but would need to then turn to the surviving whites for proper leadership. 
He was a great guy. Piece of shit. Yeah. He planned to have his Manson family hide out during the race war and then emerge to take control when it was over. Why? His thought was that because the black community had been oppressed for so long, they wouldn't have what it takes to lead and they would need help because they hadn't been in that position before. Oh, so he's a white savior. Yes. Isn't that nice? (laughs) So he decided to help instigate that race war that he predicted was coming. I'm not sure that's how predictions work, but okay. Well, it's one surefire way to make sure they come true. (laughs) I mean, it didn't, but yeah, he tried. He ordered his followers to carry out murders, intending them to be blamed on Black people. And in August of 1968, uh, Manson family members killed several people in an L.A. house, including actress Sharon Tate, who was pregnant and was the wife of director Roman Polanski. That part I knew. This part I didn't know. Also killed the coffee heiress, Abigail Folger. You know what's fucked up about that is that Sharon Tate was like eight months pregnant. Yeah. So it wasn't like they killed her and didn't know that she was pregnant. She wasn't showing. She was very pregnant and they still killed her. Like that is just nasty shit. Yeah. The next night they killed two others. In both cases, the killers stabbed their victims and wrote messages on the walls in blood. Ultimately, Manson and his cohorts were sentenced to death, but got life in prison after California banned the death penalty. And I understand he's quite popular in prison. Mm-hmm. Well, I don't know about with the inmates, but still with the outside world. Doesn't he get like thousands Ugh. of letters every year from people who want to join the family? Fucking disgusting. Ugh. What is wrong with people? I did find this tidbit quite entertaining, though. Around 1970, several members of the Manson, quote, family recorded music written by Charles Manson and actually released an album appropriately titled The Family Sings the Songs of Charles Manson. (laughs) Really? The album was reissued as a two-disc set in 1997 under the title The Family Jams and it included previously unreleased material. If he's making money (laughs) off that, I want to puke. I don't think he can. I don't think you can be in prison. Well... You can't make money off of things that are related to your crimes while you're in prison for those crimes. So I don't know how this would line up with that. I hope he's not, though. I hope you're right. He's not worth our time to research further. Fuck you, Charlie. (laughs) Anywho. A little different than a good time, Charlie. Yes. Starts as a good time, Charlie. Ends as a fuck you, Charlie. For somebody. What if you are part of one of these lovely organizations and you have like a shred of self-confidence or dignity left and you decide you want to get the fuck out? Or maybe somebody just decides they're going to rescue you and get you out when you don't even realize the situation you're in. How does that happen? So those are two different things. As it turns out, apparently most members leave on their own eventually because they either realize that their leader isn't actually infallible or they kind of start to see the hypocrisy in their, quote, moral guide or their constructed reality cracks. You know, they're allowed to go see their family or something. There was a woman in that Netflix Explained episode who was allowed to go leave to go to her father's funeral. And once she had contact with her family and the outside world, she was like, wait a fucking second. I got to get out. It's exactly why they don't want you to. Exactly. So that actually happens more often, I think, than anything else. The other thing you're talking about is what used to be done quite often, deprogramming, where family would hire someone to go in and kidnap the person who's in the cult and would essentially hold them hostage while shoving positive psychology down their throat for like a week or something, trying to break through all of that fucking thought reform and mind control and to deprogram them. wonder how much trauma is associated with that. And I wonder how much that costs. 
It's not actually allowed anymore, so yeah. probably a lot of trauma and might have been expensive. Probably a pretty risky business yeah. to be in, too. Yeah. Like, you're hard up if you're going to work for a deprogramming company that has to go oh. kidnap someone's loved one from a cult. That'd be a terrible job. I know. Yeah. So now, more than anything, they'll do exit counseling, where once someone kind of comes back to the real world, they'll have to spend a lot of time in therapy. Because, like we were talking about before, these are people who haven't made their own decisions in a really long time. Right. And to readjust to real life, you know, one woman said she was afraid to walk across the street because she thought God would strike her down with a car. It's probably like leaving prison or something. Yeah. You know, you just don't know how to function and you're scared of everything. You're completely destabilized. Yeah. Um, And you probably have a lot of self-hatred for believing that delusion for so long once you get to the point where you don't believe it anymore. Well, yeah, I'm sure that's part of the therapy. I mean, learning to accept how this happened to you, why it happened to you, Mm -hmm. because there's probably a lot of shame and self-blaming once you come to your senses, if you're able to do that. Yes. You know what Cole I am on board with? What's that? The Prosecco Theory Fan Club. Fuck yes. (laughs) Who gets to be the leader, though? Well. Can we co-lead? I mean, Bo and Peep had two leaders. We can can co-lead for now. I can't be named Peep. I'm going to have to go with Bo. I'll be Peep. Whatever. (laughs) Side note, that's what my parents called farting when I was growing up. (laughs) We were not allowed to say fart. We had to say peep. Why? I don't know. I think it's a dirty word. Why did you make us say peep? (laughs) Answer me. Oh, God. (laughs) She listens. She'll tell me. I feel like we have so much more stuff we could say on this, but we should probably stop because people are probably not as obsessed as we are. I mean, maybe they should be. It's fucking fascinating. Maybe you're more intrigued now. Maybe you learned something now. Maybe you did. And like we said, there are a ton of resources out there if you want to delve into any of these particular cults deeper. Some specific ones that I would recommend. Going Clear, all about Scientology. I believe it's on HBO. Uh, The Vow, which is also HBO, all about Nexium. I have just started watching Wild Wild Country, and I'm going to stop and make Megan watch it with me. And that one is all about one we have not even mentioned tonight. Rajneesh Puram, which was in Oregon. It was a guru-type fella from India who bought a huge compound in Antelope, Oregon, in Wasco County. There were like 50 people living in Antelope before this, and suddenly he showed up with 2,000 people, and they all walked around wearing nothing but maroon and really freaked the people of the town out and ended up busing homeless people in to register to vote and participate in elections to sway the town. Trying to control the political environment as well. Yeah, and then they ended up trying to poison restaurants food supplies like salad bars to take out the voter population of the people who'd already been in the town. I mean, Jesus Christ. Real fucked up. But there's a, a great series on Netflix called Wild Wild Country that is all about that. So The scary thing is, is that we're just highlighting ones that are well known, mm-hmm. but there are thousands, thousands more. of cults around the world that haven't received this much media attention. So yep, like little cult landmines all over. Watch yourself. Careful where you step. <laughs> Okay, and so we're definitely going to post some information about our ex-Mormon friends who are going to get back to us with the answer to the question about the planets. And we'll also post that Ricky Gervais video. And you know what else we're going to post is some resources if you or someone you know may be in a cult and you need help. Yeah, we're not fucking joking about that. I mean, it's some scary shit. So yeah. 
Absolutely. And there are organizations that can help you. So we will post links to that too. So check out all our socials. That's right. So those socials, you can find us at Prosecco Theory. We will post the links to those organizations in the show notes on the episode. So they will be available wherever you listen. And you can always send us an email at cheers at ProseccoTheory.com. We still want to see your vision boards, people. Heck yes, we do. I thought you said, I guess we do. (laughs) No, heck yes, we do. All right, it's time to go. Okay. Cheers. Cheers. Cheers.